this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better nothing better to do? I don't know. You're the one who knows it. Oh, yeah, You're the one who's like said that. it like 70 times. Yeah. Well, I say it, probably say it different every time. That's true. So, And also the podcast. That's once again, not to... I don't know if this is embarrassing for us to say. What? That we're recording in my car? Yeah. In the parking lot of, of the... Target? It's not really Target. It's part of the Thompson Fair Mall. Uh, although we don't want to reveal our undisclosed location, Who gives so all shit? our fans can come. Like it, it can be like the Today Show with people like us. Oh outside. God! And that's one reason I have trouble. I haven't watched the Today Show in years because those weren't my hours. But now, when I work at home a lot and I watch the morning news and then the Today Show comes on, one thing I can't stand about it is those idiots like you know laughing and waving behind the glass and they could be talking about something really serious I know. I and don't then understand they have these yoga have i find it very disturbing it's stupid i know it supposedly was a harken back to their old but they but the old way was they were facing the glass and people could watch them. right so it's not the same thing so why do right. we have to have morons behind them? i know with their stupid signs and i know i don't i don't watch it so. anyway so but we have a few updates you have an update and i have an update and I have a main mini, too. Wow. We we just have a lot of stuff. My update is back to... Now, of course, I can't remember the episode. Episode 40. Killed in if their own bed. so. It is. <laughs> Why? Do you not no, believe I me? Don't, do you, I, I, I don't remember. No, I can't. Well, I no. do. And okay. it was episode 40. Okay. I'm not questioning you. All right. So what's your update? Hurry up. Now I can't... Now I'm not going to say it. No. <laughs> Killed in their own backyard. The one about hunters... Not hunters, but people who are not hunting, being shot by hunters in Maine, being mistaken for deer specifically, and shot by hunters in Maine. And well, the, maybe if they'd stop wearing those deer outfits. I know. The big antlers <laughs> and doing the antler dance. The most recent one happened in the fall of 2017, and it was referenced in that podcast, which we did shortly after that. And the woman who was killed's name was Karen Rensel. And the hunter who shot her was Robert Trundy, who famously, quote-unquote, saw the ass of a deer. Um, unfortunately, it was Karen Rentzel's. She was shot in the hip and pelvis. Aww. He did not go to render aid. He, he was in his late 30s and called his father, who was hunting with him. And his father's like, you get over there. And I won't go through the whole thing. You yeah. can listen to episode 40. But anyway, he was just sentenced. He had pled guilty to manslaughter. He was sentenced to seven years, but w- will serve nine months with six years suspended and four years of probation. I think he also lost his hunting license. Good. I'm trying to remember why it took so long. He was charged shortly after. Yeah, it did, it did take that. Uh, who knows? I mean, sometimes when it's something like this, well, it's like, not, not not like a huge deal yeah it's, and it's just and, and one thing scheduling it, issues in the that's court. true and one thing i realized re-listening to the podcast recently that i hadn't said there was a lot of criticism that the woman karen rentsel who was 34 and her grandmother who she lived with were unaware it was hunting season and there was a lot of criticism criticism at the time but one thing that wasn't made clear that was made clear subsequently is it wasn't official hunting season. It was the first day of residents-only hunting uh-huh. season. And that's a much more subtle thing than when hunting season yes. actually opens a day yes. or two later and everybody's driving up from Connecticut in giant SUVs yes. with all their buddies in the truck. Karen Rental's mother, Debbie Morin, 
after the sentencing, said she could have forgiven him on the day he did it if he hadn't done everything wrong afterwards, including avoiding blame and accountability, which, if you listen to our episode, is often the case in these cases. She says, I know he didn't go out there that day planning to kill someone. I could have forgiven him. And then she said, um, she said she hopes her daughter's death serves as a cautionary tale for other hunters who may choose to pull the trigger when there's still doubt after the target they think they saw. And this is written, by the way, by John Holyoke of the Bangor Daily News. As another hunting season comes around, I hope and pray that hunters will remember Karen Wood, Megan Ripley, and Karen Rentsel. Those are all people we talked about in that episode. Morin said, Ask permission to hunt on other people's property, follow the rules to the letter, and remember the name Robert Trundy is a blueprint for what not to do. (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, you know, you have to see the head of the, of deer. the deer with the antlers and as we talk about in that we discussed as we in discussed episode. in that episode a lot of these people thought they saw a deer's butt or hind thought, legs and they didn't just think they they, they knew they saw they knew they saw which we address in the episode yes, we do. so that's my update okay first i have an update on our most updated and I was just wondering what was happening with the old Annie Dukin. Because it's been well, like Annie, at least... I don't know what she's up to right now. And so this this new update was basically from an article. Episode 29. Episode 29, Wicked Bad Chemistry. <laughs> the information I got for this update was from the Boston Globe. There was an article written by Maggie Mulliville and Beverly Ford. Took two of them. Maybe one reported and one wrote, or whatever, however you people do it in that business. If you recall from episode 29, not only did I talk about Annie Dukin, the chemist who falsified drug tests to make them positive, I also told you about chemist Sonia Farak, who also falsified the results so she could take a bunch of drugs while (laughs) she was working. (laughs) Annie worked at the Hinton State Lab in the Boston area, while Sonia worked in Amherst in the western part of the state. During my original episode, I said that though Sonia had worked at Hinton years before, there was no indication that she and Annie had worked there at the same time. Mm. But I was wrong. Mm. According to this recent Globe article, in 2003 and 2004, both women worked at the Hinton lab at the same time. And not only that, Sonia processed even more tests than Annie, who regularly processed like three times the samples, if I remember. So they were in a little of her coworkers. No, I don't think I don't know if they knew each other. This information didn't really come to light until a September 5th Supreme Judicial Court filing that revealed that the Inspector General's office, quote, did not conduct an in-depth investigation specifically into the actions of Farrakh or any other individual at the Hinton lab. Mm. I have to be honest. I've had a really bad viral infection all week. (laughs) Or you're being poisoned by your baby daddy. (laughs) And I had a hard time reading the article and trying to summarize the information. But bottom line, there are a bunch of lawsuits going on between different state agencies and against the state of Massachusetts by people convicted of drug offenses. As we have discussed in that episode and the many other updates... Tens of thousands of cases have been overturned, and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is having to pay out millions of dollars in reparations to people wrongly convicted. In 2014, the Inspector General's office issued a statement saying that how they had done a, quote, exhaustive review of Hinton Lab and found that Annie Dickman was, quote, the sole bad actor. So it wasn't that exhaustive, was it? Well, we'll see. All right. The review was of records from 2002 through 2012. Sonia Frock worked there from 2003 into 2004, and her numbers showed a high enough volume that they should have been scrutinized, but they weren't. Mm. In the article, several of the wrongly convicted lawyers weighed in, 
Many of these people have been in protracted fights with the state to get fines repaid and convictions vacated. Simply put, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is. It is. One attorney, James P. McKenna, who is representing Eugene Sutton, a man arrested on a case based on Farrakh's test, said they... The, meaning the inspector general's office, misled everyone by saying they did a top-to-bottom review of the lab, but they had no interest in people knowing how bad it was. Another lawyer who is representing Dickin defendants, his name is Luke Ryan, said, quote, Sonia Farrakh was Annie Dickin before Annie Dickin was. <laughs> I don't know if the inspector general just looked at the end of the year totals, about talking about July 2003 to July 2004, but if they had drilled mm. down a bit, they would have seen that during that 13-month period, there was nothing like that from Annie. Dukin didn't approach the numbers that Sonia Farrakh put out. Mm. Another attorney... It's like the battle of the bad I know. <laughs> Another attorney contesting a conviction based on a Farrakh test result, Christopher Post, said, quote, It's hard to see how they couldn't have spotted it. Farrakh's numbers should have been popped out for the same reason as Dukin's. And if you recall from the episode, it was part of the... The thing that made people suspicious was the fact that she had processed so, so right. much many more right. tests than other people. And it's hard to understand this update if you haven't. You and have I also wonder, when I read that article, how much of it would have had to do with with Annie being recognized more than Sonia. Is because Annie was out there. She was friendly with all these guys yeah. and everything. And Sonia was a much more retiring person. Because yeah. yeah. she was drugged. Yeah, because she was on This is a really big mess for Massachusetts caused by laziness and management sloppiness, complacency, mm -hmm. not really caring about people's constitutional rights, only about numbers and winning cases. Yeah. I have to wonder, too, these two women are extreme examples of what can happen when someone wants to cheat the system. But what about other chemists? There could have been a lot more who were either incompetent, stealing drugs, not as many as Sonia, or whatever, but they flew under the radar. She, so it's like you can't trust any drug test. Well, it's scary. Yeah. They're pointing to this, oh, she's the only one. And obviously she wasn't the only one because right. Sonia was just as bad. But there might be tons of people who aren't that noticeable. They're just flying under the radar. Right, right. It's scary. It is scary. So now are you going to play the main mini song? I am because you have a main mini, right? Yes. Oh, and, but, and before you start your main mini, I just want to say, in the interest of um, plagiarizing and stuff, even though that's obviously not us singing, and I know I've said this before, but I should probably say it every... That we got that song off the main government website, main.gov. Okay. And it's a famous song in Maine. Yes, we all learn it. We school. all know it. That's how we know the names of all the counties. Luckily, we're and now you do too. 16. My sources, speaking of plagiarism, for this main <laughs> Your sources are WMTW TV, oh, Channel, Channel 8. Uh, Channel 8, I'm sorry. I was thinking Hello. of WMUR in Manchester. Wow, a lot of cars come by because here. Because they're looking for prostitutes. Little did we know that we were in the we prostitute We made so much money. The Portland Press Herald. Oh, a lot of extra money. Speak for yourself. Uh, Not. Okay. And the Lewis... The, you, you just messed up I'm my sorry. whole thing. I'm sorry. Keep my going. sources for this main mini are WMTW TV Channel 8, the Portland Press Herald, and the Lewiston Sun Journal, which, yes, I know, are owned by the same company, but whatever. Okay. 
On September 17th, the Sun Journal reported that the Maine State Police Major Crimes Unit was investigating a property on Harrison Road in Norway, Maine, which is about 50 miles north-northwest of Portland. At the time, police said they found a body of a woman in her 80s buried in the yard of the property, quote, while conducting a search. Mm. And they were taking the remains to the state crime lab to find out the cause of death and her identity. In the following days, more information came out. While the dead woman has not yet been named publicly... The Press Herald reported the name of the person who buried her and why. About a year and a half ago, Vernell Jackson told reporter Dennis Huey, is that how you pronounce his name, Dennis Hoey? Dennis, Dennis Hoey. From the, from the Press Herald. Mm-hmm. That her best friend died in Vernell's mobile home where both women lived. The dead woman had been in poor health and had been in hospice care in the months prior to her death. Vernell Jackson had an interview with Jim Keithley of WMTW-TV on September 18th. She said, quote, she begged me, and I have witnesses to this. She asked me not to let her down. She said, will you promise to bury me in your yard so I'll be close? She considered me a daughter she never had. She said, you're the daughter I never had. <laughs> I want to be close to you. And I finally agreed to do it to satisfy. Vernell told Jim Keithley that her friend was worried because she didn't have insurance to cover burial. And Vernell added that she herself didn't have insurance either. Because Vernell is 81 and suffers from COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And if you her, watch prescription ads on TV, say, everybody's got yeah, it. And they're always doing a lot of fun stuff in their life. Right. It took her about two days to dig the hole and drag her friend's body wrapped in a tarp to the backyard. Vernell said her friend was from Virginia, was not close to her family who lived down there, and was born in 1937. The two women had met while both living in the South and reconnected here in Maine. Vernell said that when she moved to Maine 20 years ago, her best friend invited her to stay at her home in Otisfield. Four years ago, the friend had no place to stay, so Vernell asked her to move into her home in Norway, where she had lived with her husband Charlie until his death eight years ago. Vernell told the Press Herald that her friend had been a heavy drinker during her life, but when Vernell invited her to move in, quote, I told her that if she wanted to live with me, she couldn't drink. I told her, I'm a church-going person, and I don't drink. She never had another drink after she moved wow. in. Wow. Vernell liked cooking southern-style food like fish and grits for her friend, and the two women spent time together fishing or going on road trips to Old Orchard Beach. Vernell says that she had, has been cooperating fully with the state police, and she told them that her friend died of natural causes. She says she did not realize she needed a permit to bury a body. All the reports weren't clear as to why exactly the police were searching the property in the first place, but I'm assuming someone called them. They also didn't report whether a death certificate was filed or not, but again, I'm assuming probably not, which is why police were there. Mm-hmm. Someone who knew the women must have been concerned, but I ask why leave it to me to assume. Yes. Why can't somebody fucking report it? Right. Or, and if they can't find out, they should say in the story. Yes, It wasn't clear. Police wouldn't say why they were searching. Because, of course, the reporter asked police, or he wouldn't be a very good reporter, would he? Sorry, Dennis. Yeah. And Keith, Jim Keithley. On September 18th, Steve McCausland, spokesman for the Maine Department of Public Safety, told reporters, quote, We are looking for answers from the medical examiner's office. We're anticipating that could take a while. What they are trying to determine is her cause of death, and they did, and they want to confirm her identity. Right. Although Vernal told them, who uh, she uh, was, presumably, McCausland did not say wh- whether or not Vernal Jackson will be charged with anything. Vernal told WMTV, "Quote: If I go to jail for it, I just have to go." When Jim Keithley asked her if she had any regrets, she said no. And this case reminded me of one that happened a few years ago, so I had to look it up. 
Mm. On March 2nd, 2016, the Portland Press-Herald reported that a body had been unearthed in East Baldwin, Maine in an East Baldwin, Maine backyard. East Baldwin is about 35 miles northwest of Portland near Sebago Lake. Sean Farrell, 43 at the time, and his mother Carolyn, 72, lived in a house down a dirt road off Route 113. Acting on a tip, investigators found Carolyn's body buried behind the old farmhouse where she'd been living since the fall of 2015. Neighbors weren't sure how long Sean himself had been there, but he was living there before his mother joined him. Baldwin, is a, as I said, is a small town, about 1,500 people, and at the time, and I didn't check to see if this person was still doing the same job, but Debbie Wakefield was the town clerk, tax collector, registrar of voters, and the town treasurer. Hmm. She told the Press Herald, I didn't know anybody was there. It's like they never existed. It's kind of weird. Mm. The two didn't seem to own the property and had no vehicles registered with the town, so it's easy to see how they went unnoticed. The property where they live was purchased in January 2012 by a company named Back East Property Management, LLC of Fairbanks, Alaska. But the Press Herald was unable to, to find any record of a corporation of that name registered in Alaska and reported that the address of the company is a residence where neither of the Farnells seemed to have lived or were ever tenants. When the reporter from the Press Herald visited the home, there was the home where they found the body, mm -hmm. there was police tape on the door and no one answered. They were unable to reach Sean Farnell by phone. Neighbors of the Farnells told the paper they didn't see the two often. Hazel Drew, who lived only about 150 feet from the house, in her own house, obviously, told the Press Herald that shortly after Carolyn moved in, she went over to say hi. Carolyn Farnell answered, and the two women had a conversation. She was a lovely lady, mm. Hazel said. But the next day when Hazel went by the house, Sean, quote, came out the door and said, get out of here and don't you ever come back. Mm. If he was around, I couldn't go over there. Wow. Other neighbors, Marcel and Robert Kelly, said they didn't even know Carolyn was living there, much less buried there. Marcel said, I didn't even know a woman lived there. <laughs> mm. Neighbor Ken Strout said when he drove by and waved at Sean, Sean never waved back. Uh -oh. He'd just go into his garage. And he said they were very unfriendly. Because, mm. you know, when you live in a town, you got to wave. Well, there's a friendly wave. you got to wave to you. Yeah. Nope. You do that when people drive by, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. If you're in your yard and they drive by, you Or even if you're in your car in our town or you're walking, you wave. And we're both sitting here waving. waving. No charges were filed against Sean Farnell, and the family members told police Carolyn was in failing health and did not want to go to the hospital. Police did not suspect foul play at the time, but he did not get a death certificate and did not have a permit to bury her. Although the story did not say what the penalties are for breaking those laws, it would be nice to mm -hmm. know. I wasn't able to find anything updating the story online. I did look up records, and Sean may still be living at that address from what I could find out. I went over there to say We should go over and knock on the door. Single, seems yeah. like a single guy. Yeah. yeah. I think that he originally came from Vermont, but it was mm. hard to clarify that. There was never any clarification about who owned the property, even though they brought it up. Like that whole Alaska thing. I don't mm -hmm. know. Well, LLCs, one reason LLCs are formed are so ownership is private. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But, who gives a but, shit? but a lot of properties owned by LLCs. The most recent story got me to thinking... What do you do when someone dies in the home? Mm. There, these are only two such stories, but there are a lot of others like this. I don't think a lot of people know really who they bury them in the backyard yeah. or what they're supposed to do. I don't think you know it's not something that you talk about. Right. What are you supposed to do? I realized that I don't really know, so I looked it up, and it seems like the first thing to do is to call nine one one, even though it's not really an emergency, mm -hmm. like the person's dead. Like if you walked in and found Aunt Mildred dead in her bed or something. Yeah. You know. 
important. A floor, uh, if you do that, then the people who come will tell you what you're supposed to do right. next. So you don't have to worry. In any case, a medical examiner or doctor needs to sign a death certificate. Right. My ex-husband's father was a small-town doctor, and he served as a medical examiner. Examinator. He served as a medical examiner for a long time. He wasn't an investigator. He would basically just confirm the death and sign the death certificate, which is a different job than a pathologist, although... They are also medical examiners. It probably depends. Um, why do I say examinators? They're also medical examiners. It probably depends on the city and town and yeah. all that stuff. Only state-certified funeral directors or medical examiners can move a body without a permit, even if it's just from one room to another, mm -hmm. which I didn't realize that. Other people, so for instance, Vernell or Sean, have to pay a fee. Usually it's like 20 bucks or something. Fill out a form at town or city hall and show a death certificate so they can get a permit to move the body. And you get the death certificate from the medical examiner? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. The person will come and, and sign say, a death yep, certificate, give it to yep. you, and then you go right. to town hall, and then you can move the body. Or you can just get a funeral director to come, which is what I would do. Right. Or somebody well, else. Well, I don't know if it's the, any more the case, and this is part of that, but any unattended death, they, the, 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 the police, police yes. yeah. It usually is. And any time it's a, under a certain age, they uh, they have to open an investigation. I rem I know that from, when a, like, a baby's right. dead. And as you'll see from my story today, police who are doing their jobs should treat any death, any death that doesn't seem natural as a homicide unless yes, proven otherwise. Should. But I was going to say about that is this is probably going to happen to someone in our family sooner or later. And I'm just going to fucking call the... 911? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing is, when I was working in New Hampshire, and I can't remember what year this was, but it was probably sometime in the 90s, New Hampshire finally passed a law that you can't just bury somebody in your backyard. And there was quite a bit of... I think some, and sometimes you, it depends on where you live, too, right. because, like... There's water, you know, right. or I mean, you right. can't just bury someone wherever you want. That's true. My entire backyard is my septic septic system so i wouldn't be able I to i thought you were going to say your entire backyard is filled with dead bodies that you've buried. no they're around actually my entire backyard isn't there's a fenced in part where that was the dogs and then there's a little border area with woods where the dogs are buried oh yeah yeah so should i um launch into your launch thing? into my thing yes. okay Okay, I got information for this from the New York Times, articles written by reporter Jan Ransom, as well as a little bit from the New York Post, an episode of Dateline, and another episode of Injustice with Nancy Grace. Oh. And I do have my issues with Nancy Grace, but I have to say it's really interesting what each different show focused on. I know there are other times when I've watched different shows that had the same crime, but this one in particular was a case where... You would have thought totally different things in a lot of ways if you had only watched one show. I kind of like Nancy Grace. Yeah, she's funny. She I'm is sorry. funny. And as you know, we try to do topics that other shows, that other podcasts don't do very often. I don't know if anyone's done this one or not. And we do do some different things, but the, today's is a good old-fashioned dead wife in the bathtub story. Because sometimes mm. you just need one of those. And still, even if you haven't seen it on Dateline or Nancy Grace or read about it in the New York Times, <laughs> like anyone who listens to us reads the New York Times, well, Liz does. <laughs> a lot of people, why true. do you think that we I'm don't? just joking. You I'm mean the failing the Times? The Times, yes. Um, I think you'll enjoy your show today because, as I said, it's interesting what Dateline and Nancy Grace left out. Both shows focused on the religion angle, and yes, that played a part. 
But you guys know me. I prefer to focus on the psychopath ang- ang- <laughs> angle. Angle. There's, a There's no no angel. angels. No angels in this story. But this that it, psychopathic angel though in Star Trek. You know, friendly angel. We will go the one that had all the kids following. Him. Oh yeah, yeah. Somebody was just saying. I just read that. Hail, hail, fire and snow. I forgot all Somebody about that. Somebody wrote that on Twitter. We, we used to say that. Like walk that, our and house. he was that lawyer, Marvin. I, see, a lawyer played him. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. That was a very very weird wild tangent. tangent. Yes. Anyway. In 1998, Sheila Danishevsky, and that's spelled S-H-E-L-E, okay. but it's pronounced Sheila, Danishevsky was 36, and she was a successful and well-to-do senior vice president for private wealth management, first at Merrill Lynch, and then later at UBS. Um, her father had been uh, in finance. Her family was well-to-do. It was kind of a family occupation she was good at it and she made a lot of money how come we're not good at stuff like that i don't know she was described as warm and generous according to a rabbi at the lincoln square synagogue where she worshiped she told him for instance that if anyone wanted to attend one of their hanukkah events or something but couldn't afford it he should let her know and she'd pay for it quietly and without any fuss and jewish week reported that that's the only place i read that about her but there was one thing missing from her life a man yeah, I'm just going to leave I'm that sorry. hang there for dramatic. Rod Coughlin was 11 years her junior. Mm. Described as, quote, an unsuccessful stockbroker mm. in many publications. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Columbia University graduate who'd always, wait for it, had trouble keeping a job. He was a professional backgammon player. Wow. Yes. Yes, the rich are very different from us, aren't they? And he was also a, quote, self-proclaimed martial arts expert. <laughs> Anytime people call something self, self-proclaimed, self you know, they think a person's an asshole. Though, lest you think he never achieved anything, he did help found the um, U.S. Backgammon Federation. Wow. Yeah. I bet you didn't even know there was one of those. He and Sheila met at a Jewish singles party at Manhattan Bar Le Bar Bat in February 1998. She told a t- friend at the time he was everything she wanted, and I'm trying yeah, to look loser. at all that. And and he's even described as good looking, but he's not. He think of kind of Anthony Weiner without the curly hair. Is kind of they quote unquote fell in love so fast, and you know you guys know what I think of this. It's not love. It's a psychopath looking for a mark, and a woman who doesn't understand her own worth looking for a man. That her sister had to talk her down from eloping with him spontaneously. Hmm. That was on Dateline. Within a few weeks. I think two weeks they were engaged. Oh, it's just like that author woman that you did. Yes. Okay, go Yes, on. it is kind of like that, except for she was a widow. But yes, these were both wealthy, single women who had a lot to offer the world. And then they're like, this guy's a... And like, they hook up with these losers. Like, and this, this guy's, guy's 11 years loser. younger. But they married within a matter of months. Mm-mm-mm. Yep. And some would call that a whirlwind romance. When two people are engaged within weeks of meeting and then marry within a matter of months, I call it a huge honking, waving red. It's love at first sight. Red flag. <laughs> Aren't you romantic? Red flag, girls. Okay. I know. She, as we was ambitious. She was successful. She was rich, and she was the breadwinner. Coblin was struggling, and um, as we know, he dabbled or was an expert in martial arts, Ooh. and he was also obsessed with backgammon. <laughs> 
This is from a Washington Post story that's actually based on the Dateline episode, which I thought was kind of weird. But um, there's a quote from her sister, Eve. She said, he doesn't get a job. He goes to the gym twice a day, and he's just hanging around the house. It was very frustrating for her. She said, it's driving me crazy. Well, he was like that when she met him. What what did she think? And that's why why you don't fucking get engaged and married within months. Because these guys know the longer it takes you to get to know them, the less likely you are with all your millions of dollars are going to be to marry them. So they lived in Dorchester Towers, which is a luxury apartment building on West 68th Street. Coughlin soon quit his job. Apparently he had a job when they married, but he wasn't doing well at it, as was his, that was kind of his trademark, um, Mm -hmm. not doing well at jobs and then losing them. Jan Ransom of the New York Times writes, he went to school, traveled for backgammon tournaments, and had tried his luck in a number of financial ventures that his wife helped fund. Mm -hmm. He also, quote, spent countless hours pursuing women for sex. Well, that takes a lot of time. It does. Yeah, you got to find them, warm them up, have yeah. the sex when your wife isn't around. And um, well, Although yeah. she's working she all these hours. Lot. He didn't work. So. Sheila, meanwhile, as the women tend to do in these situations, made the money and took care of the kids. After 10 years of marriage, they had two, 9-year-old Anna and 3-year-old Miles. Denishevsky was busy on December 30th, 2009. And um, it says 10 years of marriage, but it was actually... I know this is going to sound um, picky, but there's a reason I'm saying this. It was was almost 11 years of marriage. But she got, that day, on December 30th, 2009, she got an expensive keratin treatment for her hair, which I guess straightens your hair, and it's very, very expensive. And her hairdresser told her to not only not get it wet, don't even get it damp, don't be anywhere humid. Oh, uh, uh, yes. I think I saw this. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, a lot of people, that's one of the things a lot of people remember about this, and there's more you'll remember as we go on. She also talked to her lawyer, Lance Meyer. She had an appointment to meet with him on January 1st to cut Rod out of her will. Uh, She was getting a divorce. It hadn't been a happy marriage. By then, they were estranged. Sheila was worth about $5 million, and her old will had it all going to Rod. Duh. A lot had happened since that will had been drawn up, and she didn't want him to get a penny. She was also talking to Meyer about cutting him out of the divorce agreement so that he wouldn't get money in the divorce. He wouldn't get Uh, alimony. And I'm not sure how you can do that. I don't want to get into legal tangles, but I think if you can prove, like, the person hadn't contributed to the marriage, had been unfaithful, that you don't have to. It is pretty hard to, because I I have a friend that went through one, and it was a very similar husband, although he didn't kill her. And um, Spoiler. And he ended up getting half of her 401k. Well, maybe he got... Maybe she didn't have a good enough lawyer. Yeah, she did. I think it depends, it depends on what state. Long, it depends how long you're willing to fight it. Yeah, really. And how much money you have to fight it, and what state you live in, what their laws, and wh- how how was. adamant you are. In, in any case, yeah. in any case, apparently, it, this was a very good possibility. She was going to be able to do this. I'm just saying. Yes. According to all the sources. That's for this. fine. Okay. Go on. Rod still um, lived in the same building. He lived across the hall in an apartment that Sheila paid for. Uh-huh. Because unemployed. She told him the night of December 30th that she was going to cut him out of her will, which may not have been a good move. And frankly, I don't know if she actually told him that, and we'll get into that later, how he knows things. Rod was busy on December 30th, 2009, too. He purportedly played backgammon online all night with his girlfriend, Deborah Oles, until 1 a.m. when he signed off. 
there, it's not clear what he did after that, but around 4 a.m. he wandered down to the lobby where there were surveillance cameras and told the concierge or doorman or whatever they are at these fancy places that he was going to the store and asked him if he wanted anything. <laughs> He'd never done that before. In fact, he rarely spoke to the guy and was considered rude by the people who worked there and his neighbors. The concierge said no thanks, and Kavlin said, Come on, man, I know you want something. That's weird. So the guy asked for a candy bar. Snickers. Kavlin mm. came back about ten minutes later and gave him a candy bar. Kavlin made a second trip outside a little later. He was caught on su- surveillance. He went out a back door where there was no doorman or concierge, but it locked, the door locked automatically behind you when you went out at night. Um, so he came back through the lobby and surveillance caught him. And it's not clear what he was doing, but... And I just want to point out here on the video, he's wearing a kind of faux camouflage hoodie. And another f- photo um, on the show's shows him like at a backgammon tournament or something wearing a hoodie with these like wide horizontal pink and blue stripes i mean just really tacky clothes and then he's wearing like this shiny tacky looking polyester shirt at one point i'm like if you're that rich do you have to buy such tacky clothes i mean not maybe they're in style yeah i guess but well then i'd rather be out of style i'm just saying around seven in the morning of december 31st nine-year-old anna woke up and went into the bathroom to find her mother sheila dead in the bathtub face down in a tub full of bloody water. Oh. Anna went to her father's apartment. As I said, he was living across the hall. And she told him, Mommy won't wake up. Mommy isn't moving, according to him. I Who knows what say, she really she's said. She's fucking nine. Right. Is she ta- why is she talking like she's two? I don't know. This was his account of it. Lying sack of shit. Yeah. She probably said, Dad, you finally killed Mom? What the hell? No, I'm just... That's not funny. Too soon. And the reason, by the way, the reason she got him the apartment across the hall, the reason it took her so long, as we'll talk about later, to get a divorce, is because she didn't want to break up the family, and she wanted him to be close to the kids. And know he was such a good father, which he really wasn't, as you'll see. And I think that's all bullshit, too. It's as bullshit as getting married to somebody you've, you barely know. But Rod called 911 and claimed he'd tried to perform CPR. Mm-hmm. Anna called down to the desk to tell them an ambulance was coming and to let them in. And the concierge says she sounded upset. When the first cop got there, Anna answered the door of the apartment. The cop asked if her mother was home. So I'm thinking the information to dispatch didn't get to that first cop who got there if he's asking the nine-year-old if her mother's home. And Anna responded, uh, kind of, sort of. Poor kid. <laughs> God, why um, are people so dumb? I know. They found Sheila on the bathroom floor wrapped in a comforter. It looked from photos that she was kind of cocooned in it, head to toe, and Kavlin was kneeling next to her. And not one thing I've read or watched mentioned that is seeming weird. I would think it was odd if I were a first responder and the person who drowned in the bathtub was now wrapped in a comforter. It's more something what somebody who kills someone does than somebody who pulls somebody from a bathroom. didn't he just listen to my last thing where you're not supposed to move the body? Well, he he pulled her out to try to perform CPR, he said. But you'll see why this seems weird. One of the EMTs said she was obviously dead and they didn't perform any life-saving functions. She was stiff with rigor mortis. Uh. One of her arms was bent. They couldn't unbend it. You know, so Rod should have gotten that too. Despite the fact he said he'd rolled her out of the tub and said he'd tried to perform CPR, his white t-shirt and sweatpants were clean and dry. Hmm. And the water was bloody. Like, if you look at crime scene photos, the water was pink with blood, you know. He told the police he thinks she must have slipped and fallen in the tub and hit her head. 
yeah. And the police are like, yep, a cabinet door above the tub, and it's it's high, it's head height, it's not it's not like a low cabinet. Above the tub was ripped off its hinges. So, yeah, it made sense. Now it's, yeah. Well, video surveillance shows her entering the building talking on her phone the night before. Her phone couldn't initially be found at the scene, which we find out later. Um, it's not clear if anybody was looking for her phone that night or anything. Kind of a hole in the story. On Nancy Grace, the guy who was apparently the detective on the scene, his name was Carl Rode something, I didn't write it down, said he'd seen a lot of people fall in the tub, and this one was very odd. Ooh. She had little scratches on her face and neck. Hmm. He couldn't get much out of Anna, the nine-year-old, who was distraught, but he figured he'd wait for the autopsy to figure things out. Still, despite some red flags... Rod's dry clothes, the body cocooned in a comforter. Oh, my God. Like I said, which is the kind of thing someone does when they kill someone, not when they've pulled them out of the tub to try to resuscitate them. And also, despite the fact that many cops say that until they can prove otherwise, an unnatural death is a homicide, the police at the scene didn't take prints on anything, didn't look for any evidence, didn't collect DNA, didn't take anything in the bathroom for evidence, or even take any notes. They talked to a couple of neighbors, but not many. They never searched Rod's apartment, the hallway, or anything else for evidence. It looked like an accident. Huh? Yeah. It must be an accident. The husband That's thinks so. On. They just took the donuts out of it. And something <laughs> they didn't <laughs> And something they didn't point out in any of the articles I read or on either of the shows I watched, wicked rich people. As we know from countless cases, even really bizarre shit, Chambonet, anyone? Yeah can get a pass when it's in an expensive residence and the people involved are wicked white and wicked rich. I feel like if this had been a different apartment in a different place with different people, the police might have been a little less willing to agree with everything like the ex-husband said. What happened next will be in every single story you read, every TV show you watch, because she and her family were Orthodox Jews. She was buried the next day and there was no autopsy. You'll see here or read that a rabbi cleaned up the blood in the bathroom peroxide, and any blood or tissue was either buried with her or burned, um, according to the religion, according to which thing you see here or read. Here's a little more to that story, as reported by the Law and Crime website, which got its info from the New York Daily News. And since I'm not sure how much is their interpretation and how much is from the Daily News, and I think actually a lot of it came from trial testimony, spoiler there is a trial eventually. I bet you can't imagine who it is who got arrested. <laughs> the day Sheila's body was found, or the day after actually, Meyer Weil, a medical device salesman, self-described rabbi, and co-founder of Miss Axim, an organization for Orthodox Jewish families that aims to help mourners deal with the death of a loved one while navigating Jewish law, cleaned the bathroom up. By the way, he does not actually teach Torah, according to those sources, but says he was granted the honorary title of rabbi Mm. because of his affiliation with Miss Axum. I'm not sure how all this works, so I don't want to demean his authority. I know very little little about what it takes to become a rabbi. I would think it's a very solemn and long process. That means teacher. I, I understand what it means. But the whole thing does seem a little hinky to me, that's all. Yeah, well, he is self-proclaimed. Yes, he and he admits he's not a real rabbi, just an honorary one. But somebody asked the organization, it's not clear who, but I have a suspicion, to clean up. 
which is why Wheel was there on New Year's Day to remove any blood from the apartment along with any items containing Sheila's blood. And this says, and burn them in accordance with Jewish law. Uh, Nancy Grace, a family friend, Mike Appel, said it was buried with her body. That was all buried with her body. But who knows which, as, you, as with many of the things we do, depending on what you read or see, you get different yeah. facts. I also heard or saw one reference that said Rod was instrumental in getting the apartment cleaned and her body buried without an autopsy. Couldn't find it when I went back to look for it. And haven't seen it anywhere else. Though no one says who got wheeled to come over to the apartment so quickly, it makes me think it very well might have been Rod. I mean, the family was in shock. Well, her parents, her brother, her sister, you know, but it's right after it happened. Well, when you think about it, even even her family, if they weren't suspicious... Well, we'll get to that. uh, Okay. Yeah. Wheel also said he helped convince her family not to have an autopsy done. Oh, and as we right, said, yeah. they were orthodox, and yes. you get that body in the ground. You're not supposed to, they don't even embalm them. Right. Yeah. Quote, I told them I want to come talk to them personally about why they want to do that, have an autopsy, because an autopsy is against Jewish tradition. And he said this in court. And the prosecutor asked what his goal was, and he said to prevent the autopsy. And it worked. Well, her family had already signed a form saying they didn't want an autopsy. They were apparently having second thoughts. We'll convince them not to have one. That was nice of him. And I do wonder if Rod had any influence. I can't imagine he and Rod weren't communicating during this. I know, that's what during makes, this. makes you wonder. He said the cops were fine with him cleaning up the blood. He said his organization called the police department, let them know he'd be doing it. Somebody at the police department told him, no problem. And he said there was a cop at the door, which... I'm not sure if that's accurate from other things I've heard, and also since they didn't consider it a crime scene, why there would be one. They'd release the house, so... But in any case, he said the police let him in and didn't care. So here we are, two days after Sheila is found dead. No investigation has been done, no autopsy, and she's in the ground. The detective, Carl... I'm sorry, I, I meant to write down his last name and didn't... I want to say Roadhouse, Roadhouse but that's not what it... But he said... So where do we go from here? You know, no body, nothing to go on. What are you going to do? Right? Next. Let's just say the cops did talk to people. Here's some of what they would have found out. (laughs) The marriage seemed like it kind of sucked from the start, as we've already heard. Rod didn't work. He spent tons of money on backgammon fees. He was lazy. He didn't do anything around the house. He wasn't taking care so of the kids. he went to, like, backgammon tournaments? Yes. Okay. Yeah, which apparently were incredibly... Well, it cost a fee. Any time you enter a tournament yeah. or something, you pay a registration That's fee. True. Apparently, these ones were quite hefty, and he would travel all over the world playing backgammon. In fact, those of you who are really interested, though I wouldn't recommend it because it's boring as shit, if you go on YouTube and just put his name in backgammon, in, and his last name is spelled C-O-V-L-I-N... You will find multiple videos of backgammon games, and the camera's above the backgammon yeah, board. So you can see the game. Yeah. So you can see the game, and you can hear the inane discussion between him and whoever he's playing. Uh. It's not very interesting, but apparently that's where a lot of his, apparently that's where a lot of Sheila's money went. Mm. He also liked to stay out late and party. He cheated yeah, on her. Know. His behavior was erratic, both physically and mentally abusive. She told family and friends she isn't one of those people who hid the stuff that was going on with them. On their 10th anniversary, and I didn't find a date, but it was sometime in 19... 
they got married sometime in 1998, a few months after they met in February, so it would have been in 2008. He asked for an open marriage. <laughs> she said, no, it was funny on Nancy Grace, because Nancy Grace says, I tell my husband, well, I can't do her accent, yeah. but I tell my husband, open marriage, open casket. And I said, oh, so Nancy Grace's husband must be asking for an open marriage, too. And I don't know why he asked her for an open marriage when he was cheating anyway. Maybe he wanted her affirmation because he felt like she was getting sick of him and was afraid if they got yeah. a divorce, his cheating ways. I, who knows? He was a manipulator. And In January 2009, Sheila told her sister, Eve Karstadt, that she was, quote, very scared that at some point in the future all his anger and rage may result in something bad happening. He really can't control his temper. Ah, ah. Now, if that's not a red flag, I don't know what is. I don't know. The children's babysitter, Hyacinth Reed, said that one day Kavlin was screaming at Sheila so loudly inside the apartment that he could be heard in the hallway. Later, Sheila told... Hyacinth, he'd thrown her to the floor. Despite all that, she didn't want to lose her family. And I know, I understand that it's difficult for people to leave an abusive partner, and there are issues related to that. But I can never understand when they say, it's for the kids, I don't want to break up the family, I love him. And I heard that on another show about another spouse murder I was watching last night or the night before, where the, the guy was horrible horrible to the wife and she's like yeah but i want to keep our family together well what kind of family are you keeping together oh, shit. you know I, and i also think especially high achieving people like sheila they don't want to have failed at something they think they can fix it yeah you know but read the writing on the wall this guy is not going to get better you know an asshole and also i don't think he's that great for the kids as, no, as you'll what kind see. of example right and it turns out like many of these guys rod was a little bit of an it expert Oh, they always He must have picked up that while he was home playing video games or something. At some point, he put a key reader on Sheila's computer that allowed him to see what she was typing. Ah. So he could read her email, which she didn't know, obviously. He also apparently was able to hack into her phone and read her texts. Hmm. Her lawyer, Lance Meyer, said on the Nancy Gray show, he had to know where she was at all times. Then he goes, I guess you could call it a little bit of a stalking behavior. I think you can call it, I think you <laughs> can just call it a lamp. stalking behavior. <laughs> and that's one of the issues I have with this stuff and other stuff you see is the way people downplay this kind of behavior and don't see it. Gift of fear, people. Everybody read Gift of Fear. The straw that broke the camel's back was on Mother's Day 2009 when they were at the Botanical Gardens in New York with the kids and Rod's parents. He screamed at her, calling her a bitch and a cunt in front of everyone because she wasn't respecting his mother on Mother's Day. And it's not clear what she did to disrespect the irony. I'm, I'm, yes, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at what he did. I'm laughing at the irony, yes. Yes. Because in front of his children, he is calling their and mother his and his fucking parents. Right. The next day, Sheila met with her sister in the Lord and Taylor shoe department. I just like that detail. Yes. I don't know if they were meeting there because they thought it would be private and no one would see them, or they were both shopping and that was a place to talk. With one stone. It'd be nice. That's one of these little details. I wish that somebody, when they gave them, would say why. And Sheila was crying hysterically. She showed her sister a letter she'd written to Rod saying it was time for them to end their marriage, which I'm sure he already knew she wrote because he yeah, could read her emails. And I think everybody these days types stuff on their computer. You know, it's not like she wrote it out by hand on... Eve, the sister, said Sheila was terrified to send it, and she's terrified not to send it. Whether she sent it or not, and it's not clear, she did have that conversation with Rod, and he moved out into the apartment across the hall. 
that she paid for, and she filed for divorce that month. That was May of 2009. Later that month, her attorney, Lance Meyer, got a text from her saying Rod was attempting to move back into the apartment. She changed the locks and filed a restraining order against him. But at some point, apparently, she gave him keys to the apartment because he had keys to the apartment. And nothing I read, I mean, he seems, like, sneaky enough that he could have had her keys copied. Nancy Grace was the only thing that reported that she told her lawyer that and got the locks changed. In fact, what it said is she, or maybe it wasn't Nancy Grace because it was something I read, it said she decided to get the lock changed. And one of the issues as an editor I always had with decided is, like, the, it's an editor's joke, but there's three monkeys on the branch of the tree. Two decide to jump off. How many are on the branch? Three, you don't know because you don't know if they jumped off or not. So what she he could have had she could have thought initially that'd be a good idea for him to have keys for emergency reasons. Right, right, and then she but who knows why he had keys because she did probably abusing. I don't know if he was supposed to have them or not. Nobody reported on that. It was maybe if I read like every day of the trial. The trial lasted eight weeks. So and maybe she just figured it was easier to deal with. The child sharing. She worked long hours. He didn't. After all this happened, he told her employer that she used drugs and had stolen money from their joint account. <coughs> the employer um, ultimately didn't believe him, and none of it checked out. And I don't get. I know he was trying to sabotage her, but hello, if she loses his jobs, you lose your money. A joint Mr. account unemployed. that she put all the money into. Yeah, I know. She's stealing money from herself. Coblin, who'd apparently at some point gotten a job at Pragma Securities, a financial consulting firm, lost it around that time and told the judge during their divorce proceedings he could no longer afford to pay child support. The judge banned him from spending money to attend backgammon uh. tournaments and told him that he needed to get a job to help support his family. And Nancy Grace and others have pointed out that he didn't, blamed the judge for that ruling he blamed Sheila in July he accused her of sexually abusing Miles who was two at the time he coached Miles on what to say oh that's so child protective services got involved but after an investigation they determined not only was it unfounded but that that Rod was making it up it's not like Rod was mistaken or something he was making it up one of the private investigators that you'll find out that um Sheila's family later hired said on Nancy Grace He's dealt with a lot of divorces, and this was the most perverse and evil case he'd ever dealt with. And Rod's move with the child sexual abuse backfired. Sheila's lawyer asked the court to limit his visitation, and the court agreed and said that visitation had to be supervised. And so backfired. Patricia Swenson, a woman Rod met online that summer, testified in court later that he told her that he wanted to kill Sheila or have her die some other way. Now, I'm not sure how you would have her die some other way. Maybe a fake accident. I don't know. Maybe. Sheila was also making sure, as I mentioned earlier, that he didn't get any money from the divorce settlement. This information, of course, she emailed and texted to people who were close to her. So he knew all about yeah. it. So there are a lot of things that maybe the cops could have found out that would have pointed to Rod initially and made them think it wasn't an accident if they had just talked to one fucking person well you know it's easier to just you know right even though it seemed odd to that cop he didn't apparently talk to anyone whatever after sheila was buried the family began comparing notes and thinking you know maybe it wasn't an accident Hmm. 
And you gotta think about it. They were in. Sh- it was twenty four yeah. hours. They were in shock. They were told it looked like an. It right, looked, right. They like. went with what the police, the medical examiner said it was undetermined. So they went to the police, and the police were all, "Well, we really can't do anything. There's no evidence. There was no autopsy. You know, we don't have." Yeah, well, there is a body. So within two. Right, Sorry. who's buried in the ground. Yeah, but I'm just saying. It's not like she was cremated is all I'm saying. Well, that's an ex- we'll get to that. Okay. Sorry. Within two weeks of her death, the family had hired private investigators. Oh, you should watch the Nancy Grace show. Those guys are great. Yeah, I'd watch it if I could. Yeah, I'm sorry. One of them told Nancy Grace, everything kept coming back to Rod. Rod, Rod, Rod. <laughs> I thought of Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Yes. But how do you prove it? The apartment wasn't being held by the police. And apparently, Sheila's family left it exactly as it had been. Kind of like that bar in the Ray Melanson thing. Only this was only a few months, not... Or a couple weeks, not 20-something years. So it was exactly as it had been the night she died. And I want to say, you can be really rich and still have a messy apartment. And it always makes me think I should clean my house in case something happened to me that would end up on dateliners. I know, that's true. But I don't want to embarrass Mom. Anyway... They determined the cabinet door that had been pulled off the hinge really couldn't have been pulled by someone falling. It was high. It was a double hinge door that would have taken a lot of strength. And um, one of the investigators said even even if she had broke the hinge, which was unlikely, what was her other arm doing? It, it shouldn't have been breaking her fall. There's no sign that, you know, that someone fell there just that the door was broken. It, it didn't make sense. The private investigators and family convinced police to reopen the investigation and to dig up the body, to exhume the body. That had to be approved by the medical examiner. It was also um, against the religion to dig up the body, but they decided at this point, you know, it was crucial. So they had to wait a while for it to get approved, to go through all the bureaucracy. Four months after her death, in April 2010, Sheila's body was exhumed. It turns out the hyoid bone in her neck was broken, Ah. which is a sign that somebody has been strangled. It's a hard bone to break in any way except for extreme pressure right on that part of your neck. You can't break it like if you fell and hit your head on a fence post or hit your neck on a fence post. It would be very unlikely you would break that. So it all almost always means somebody died of strangulation. The police detectives said now they knew they had a homicide. They took over the case from the private investigators and they went over the apartment with a fine-tooth comb. Maybe the private investigators just should have kept the case. I know. The cop said that they had been looking for her phone. It wasn't there. I think they took some photos that the night she died and it wasn't there. And then when they went back to look at the apartment, there it was on the coffee table. So somebody had had her phone. Hmm. It was obvious she had it because surveillance video showed her on it as she walked into the house that night and then it was just gone but here it was back in the apartment not many people had keys to that apartment Mm. i'm just saying the detective said that despite what the rabbi or um honorary rabbi said about about the cops letting him in that he had cleaned the house without the detective's knowledge and i can see the communication being bad new york PD has thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I can see the guy calling up and saying, hey, is that scene released? We want to go clean it. Well, I'm a rabbi, blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying, yeah, sure, go ahead, without ever telling the detective. So the cops went through all the security tape from that night and more, looking at everyone in the building to see if there was anything suspicious. It doesn't look like there were any cameras in the hallway where their apartment was. Nobody's mentioned whether there were or not. But it looks like they were in the public, in the lobby, in elevator areas. She had no enemies. 
Nobody in the building seemed to be doing anything suspicious, acting suspicious, except for Rod, of course, who made that weird offer of candy to the doorman. So the cops focused on Rod. It seems it was only now they were figuring out what he was like. It seems like everyone knew, but the cops never asked. The cop is like, and we're finding out that he was this and this and that. And it's like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) You know, but still the cops couldn't prove anything because they hadn't taken any evidence from the scene and... But, if it's any justice at all, in those early days, early years, Rod's big plans to get all Sheila's money didn't really work out. In 2011, her family filed a wrongful death suit against him, and that, I think, in other legalities that I'm not clear on, kept the money from him. Money for the kids was held in a trust. There was a custody dispute over the kids. Rod wanted custody. His parents ultimately got it. It's not clear from what I've read or seen that if her parents sought custody of the kids it's weird that his parents got it but yeah they, i've seen but that he is the father of the children yeah. well nobody wanted him to have it yeah. but he moved in with his parents of course oh. in scarsdale <laughs> in september 2011 he assaulted his mother ah. slamming her head against a wall so it wasn't on mother's day it was in October. no it was in september oh, yeah. two months later he attacked his father he also took 84 grand from his children's college fund, and I think the attacks on his parents were fights they had over that money. There's yeah. a funny audio on the Nancy Gray show, and you can find more of it on YouTube, of both of his parents screaming at him, accusing him of stealing the kids' money, very angry, very, and he's, of course, denying it, and it's not clear to me who, who recorded that, them or him. Mm. That's one of the differences with Dateline. It portrays the parents as totally supportive of him and having no issues with him and doesn't have that at all, hmm. which I thought yeah, was weird. Yeah, the one I saw was Dateline. Yes, was, yes, and the parents are very, you know, doesn't go into all this. Yeah. In January 2013, he tried to get Anna, who was 12 at the time, to accuse her grandfather of rape. Oh, my God. But she wouldn't do it. Later that year, he plotted to kidnap Anna. Remember, she's 12 and take her to Mexico, pay someone $10,000 to marry her, which would emancipate her from her grandparents, and meaning that um, she no longer would have that trust money and he could get it. It's not clear how far he went on that plan, but I think he tried to enlist some people to help him, and nobody would would traffic a 12-year-old girl, (laughs) which is reassuring, I guess. In June of 2013... A few, you know, so this was six months later. He tried to frame Anna for Sheila's murder, composing oh an, my God. composing an email on her account that was made to look like it was written by her. He used he used Apple Notes that synced with her email account, and the email said in part, "All of these years, I have been so incredibly afraid and guilty about the night my mom died. I lied. She didn't just slip. That day we got into a fight about her dating. I got so mad I pushed her." But it couldn't have been that hard. I didn't mean to hurt her, I swear. But she fell and I heard a terrible noise and the water started turning red. And I tried to put her her head up, but she remained still. I'm not sure who he was meant to send this to. It was never sent. Or if he just wanted it on her computer and then was going to... He wanted it on computer, but but like, if she had said... Oh, but, I got so mad at her, I strangled her. I know. They seem to forget <laughs> about the whole hyoid bone, and that comes up again later. In 2014, he tried to get his girlfriend, Deborah Oles, the one who was his partial alibi for the night of Sheila's murder, because he was playing online backgammon with her. Yes. He tried to get her to help him kill his parents. 
he <laughs> there was a poisoning. There were a couple different oh plots. There was God. a poisoning one. There was one that involved killing them and burning down the house. She didn't want to have any part of it. She told Nancy Grace his anger and rage were uncontrollable. She said she was scared of him, too. Did she break up with him, I hope? Well, no, because what happened is she realized that to have enough information to go to the police, she would need to act like she wasn't appalled by him and stuff. She told him once she was afraid he'd kill her, too. And he laughed and said he only killed people who went against him or something like that. Plus, she probably didn't have enough money. Yeah. Maybe once they were married. But she she did finally go to the cops. She was afraid she was next on his hit list. He was finally arrested in November 2015 as he got off a train in Scarsdale. He was indicted by a grand jury on two counts of second-degree murder, and I'm not sure why there were two counts. The cop, Carl, said the family gets credit for working so hard to get Kovlin arrested. And it kind of makes you wonder about all these families that don't have the resources or, to or work. Or if they so. just took everything at face value. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah. Oh, it was an accident. We're not going to try that. Uh, and then what would have happened to, like, one, Anna or, or the other kid once they got old enough that he didn't want them to have any of the money? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. While he was in jail, a surveillance video caught him demonstrating to what looks like a very bored and uninterested fellow prisoner in a in a dining area or an area with tables, a chokehold that he was like going like this. He wasn't doing it on a person, but you he can was. Describe what you're doing for that. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, <laughs> it, it kind of. If you had somebody Putting and you arm. were using your arm around their neck yes. as a chokehold, that's what he was doing. Like only the, that was played in court, but neither the articles I read about that testimony in court, nor the TV shows that showed it, because it's such compelling video explained fully why that was evidence to me yes she was killed by somebody strangling her but it's there was no audio it's not it nobody's saying yeah, he's telling the guy it, yeah. nobody in that who was there as he was doing it said yeah he was saying how he killed his wife that i could see and as we know guys who fancy themselves martial arts experts <laughs> are always showing you their little yes, martial arts move i went out with somebody once who did that it was played in court, and again, you can find it on any TV show about this you watch. They're going to show that because it's video, but yeah. nobody really says what its significance is. A lot of big deal was made by everyone about how circumstantial the case was, and one of my peeves is that most cases are circumstantial. Yeah. There are very few cases, especially ones they're going to do TV shows about, where somebody's standing over the person with a literal smoking gun. Or some, yeah, or, or someone walks up in front of 20 people and shoots somebody. Yes. The ones that aren't circumstantial are solved a lot more quickly and, you know. Yeah, and, they're, not, they're not very interesting. And, so anyway, he was convicted in April of this year after an eight-week trial. Yeah. And I think, one thing, too, is I think the richer people are, the longer their trials are. Because yeah, the more experts they can and, hire yeah. and the more motions that can be filed. And that was more than nine years after she was killed. And her brother-in-law, Mark Karstadt, said, The wheels of justice turn very slowly, and we always had confidence that ultimately this day would come. And he was sentenced to 25 years to life, by the way. Of course, it's being appealed. And the lead prosecutor, Matthew Bogdanos, said his primary motive was pure, unadulterated greed. And I'll just add to that that I know everybody wants this specific motive, but you guys know how I feel about that. What, what it was is he was a psychopath with yeah. no feelings for other people, including, obviously, his children. He wanted what he wanted. 
and he tried to get it. And so it's not just simple like, oh, he was greedy, he wanted... Like when somebody kills someone for a lot less, and the lawyers or whoever say, like, he was going to kill her for only $50,000. Well, if you're a psychopath, yeah. And I, Someone's in your way, and, and you don't care. Anything that's an impediment, it's got to go. Right. And it doesn't matter who, if it's a person or what. I urge, as usual, everyone to read Eraser Murderers, mm-hmm. which was written in 2008, and I had to find a used copy online because it talks about this kind of guy and this kind of murder. They're almost always guys, although there are some women. His attorney, Robert Gottlieb, said in closing arguments there was no way to determine who had murdered Sheila, and he blamed the cops for botching the investigation. It is impossible to know beyond a reasonable doubt what happened to Sheila Kovlin, how it happened and why it happened, he said. And I disagree with that. I agree it's circumstantial. I agree there's no smoking gun. But he's one of the few people who had keys to her apartment. Somebody who had keys went in there and did it. Uh, At the same time, you can argue that, not that I agree, I'm sure he did it, but because the cops didn't collect the evidence... Yes. There isn't the evidence for the jury to say without a doubt, I be- or somebody on the jury to say, I really, this evidence is proving to right. me that he did it. I can see if you're a real stickler, but and he's a defense attorney. So and yes, and I and I and I'm always side with the defense attorneys, and they're doing their job, and their job is to make sure the case is prosecuted, so that the person, uh, so, so that guilty people, cases where where innocent people go to jail. Or, or, but in this case, I want to say, op- yeah. right? I, but in this case, I want to say that despite the circumstantial evidence, despite the circumstantial nature of what little evidence there was, you have to eliminate. There, yeah. the surveillance shows no one going yeah. in and out. It, he's the only one who had access. He had. I know motive is not part of you know an official thing, but yeah, he did. He, you know, and the, the fact that her the bone in her neck was broken, somebody strangled her, and there he is showing his that is evidence right, of a how murder. She died. Right, yes. it wasn't an accident. an accident. And a nine-year-old girl, even even if she could go strangle her mother, is not going to be able to have the strength. To right, right. And as you know, people discount red flags. There were a million here. Well, they're not direct evidence. It should have started with the cops getting that this wasn't normal and investigating it at the scene, and well, I they, agree they with were that. Estranged. Come on, right? Even just the fact that they're not. I'm not together. sure how much the cop that night found out. The cop, the detective went there. I assume, though nobody has even said this, he wasn't the first cop on the scene, but he went there because it was an unattended death. Okay. He seems to, despite the fact he thought it odd, and she had little scratches on her face, and she was wrapped in a comforter, and Rod wasn't wet. Rigor Mortis had said all these things. It doesn't sound like he did any investigating. That if it seemed odd to him, you'd think he would have said, "Not oh, I guess I'll wait for the autopsy," which he says now in hindsight on Nancy Grace. But you talk to people. I should. I doubt. And Rod, we know as many psychopaths are, was this apparently when he wanted to be charming guy, and he probably pulled the wool over the cop's eyes. So it didn't occur to the cop to do anything. Granted, the cop didn't know there was not going to be an autopsy, that she was going to be buried. But that doesn't negate evidence, as we all know, and we don't even have to watch Nancy Grace to know this. You don't even have to have a rabbi going in there Mm -hmm. and wiping things up. To know that evidence deteriorates, things change. If you're not, if you don't have the apartment sealed up, people can go in and do things. The private eyes, in fact, the, the defense brought this up too, that... Despite the fact, apparently, the apartment hadn't been changed. The private eyes went through it. Her family went through it. All this stuff happened. You know, it 
it hurts the crime scene. So I don't really buy the cops thing that he was going to wait for an autopsy. I think he just figured these are really rich people. They, I'm not going to yeah. worry too much think, about yeah, their it's shit. Like he, it's like, yeah, well, right. you know, it looks like an accident, whatever. And Nancy Grace points out, too, and as we know, she was a lawyer, that um, an investigation can supersede religious beliefs. You know, there's a lot of people more on the NBC show than on her show that said, well, you know, they were orthodox, they had to bury the body, there wasn't much we can do about it, and that's not true. That's not true, and it has, there have been other cases with similar things happening, and I think there was probably even, you know, usually you do have to bury within a certain amount of time, but like, my ex's uh, grandmother had, her body had to be had to be shipped to she was going to be buried in Chicago so she couldn't be buried right. within 24 hours and she wasn't orthodox but she was she was conservative so right. it's not it's, a, a it's case not by a, case right, basis right. it's not like and, it has to and, be and yeah not to bang the drum on this but i wonder if her parents hadn't been super rich if the cops would have yeah. pushed harder to do the autopsy that the parents they're not going to get into a pissing match with people with that much money yeah and they're not going to piss them off. And they, right, I think they were. And, and also, the red flags were there before she was ever killed. The red flags were there for her family. And, such and, a, there's so, so, so many cases. Yes. Where what, uh, and, and it's usually, maybe it's just more noticeably, and maybe because we see more stories about the husband. But the husband being a loser, not being able to keep a job. Love bombing the person. In other words, rushing them into a relationship yeah. and marriage, moving too fast. We saw it with Dirty John. We saw it with Helen Bailey, the the British you writer. See it with so many you see it with so many. And it's not always they're going to kill them. It's uh, they're going to steal all their money. But, you know. The, right, but also the the and the uh, fact that they're afraid of the guy. The guy does all these things. The guy's controlling. The guy spies on them, mm-hmm. and but people just kind of discount it or don't discount it, but say, oh, he's an asshole. What a jerk. Blah blah blah. And nobody goes the extra step to say you're in a dangerous situation and you need to get out of it. Or or maybe they do, and the person shrugs it off and says, oh no, I'm not. He's harmless. Well, he's but, not gonna. Well, like I was saying, he's before, too lazy to hurt me. We were ta- I think that. If you're a person on the outside, you actually, a lot of times you want to be reassured. You don't, you don't want to be the person that's like going, so-and-so, I'm afraid he's going to kill his wife. And everyone else is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. You don't want to be dramatic. You don't want to get embarrassed. You don't want to seem hyperbolic. Or or seem like you're meddling into someone's issues. Right. You're meddling in someone's issues. You're over-dramatizing something. Whatever. Sadly, the kids stood by their dad. And I guess you can't really blame them. They were young. They've lost their mother, admitting their father's a psychopathic murderer who killed their mom, even after all that shit he pulled. Um, It's hard. They're they're young kids. The daughter's now 19 or whatever. They'd lose everything. But during his sentencing, according to news accounts, the only emotion Kavlin showed was when his mother read a statement from Anna, who at this point is 19, I think, 18 or 19, defending him, she says, My mom slipped, hit her head, fell unconscious, and drowned, just like the medical examiner said when he found her. And so obviously no one had explained the whole hyoid bone thing to her or whatever. And the medical examiner may have said that, but he also said the death was undetermined. So I think, unless I'm getting that mixed up with another bathtub 
murder I watched the other night because there are a lot of these. There was uh, the uh, other one, that cop one, where they didn't even with the lazy cop. Right, the lazy cop. Coblin's 12-year-old son, 12 at the time of the sentencing, also asked the judge for a light sentence. Please give him a light sentence so I have him back in my life. I love him so much. Oh, Jesus. The mother-in-law read. And on the Dateline episode, which had no info at all about the abuse of his parents, it shows the parents staunchly standing by him after the sentencing, saying he's innocent, saying it was an accident. And it kind of boggles my mind. They're not kids, his parents. They're adults. They're this person's parents. If you listen to the audio of those arguments, they obviously know there's something wrong with the guy. But they're in denial. I mean, I'm I, I know they're in denial or whatever. But what I'm saying is that it, it, it's another issue of people not of people totally disregarding red flags. And in a lot of these cases, you see but, the person, the psychopath, is enabled by family but members. But the problem who, is, they're his parents, yes. so they are going to have to admit that they raised someone like him. Yes. And even if it's a mental illness that they really don't have control over. Right. They, you know, I'm not saying right. that it's right, or I'm not saying they're right to be that way, but it's harder when yes. it's your child right. that you're going to admit, okay, yeah, my kid and, is a fucking psychopath. And it's psychopath. interesting, like, calling it, saying it's a mental illness. I know there's different definitions of things. People like this... Are in a, if you read the Eraser Murder book or listen to Dr. Phil's podcast, Mind and Murder, which um, <laughs> I like quite a bit, and I'm not afraid to say it, that it's it's not that they're and and you know this, like it's not that they're like they like mentally it, yeah. ill and are, can't help it and can't recognize no. that people like him are making choices. Yes, they are to do these things. They're people who operate in society. Some of them actually have jobs. In fact, the fact that he doesn't can't hold a job isn't because he's like mentally ill but it's like he's an asshole who thinks he's smarter than everyone else and it you know so i know it's a gray area but that's one of the issues with these people is they know what they're doing they know how they're behaving they know right from wrong but they don't care they know and they also and we all know people and i've said it before we all know people that are sociopaths 10 percent of society is and they don't all kill people but you know people who are like this that they just do it and they know that most people aren't going to call them on it because most people just don't want to deal with it. Right. And, and they and can manipulate not, people. Yes. How many times have we heard somebody who we know is, you know, 10% of yeah. people are, are sociopaths or psychopaths, and there really isn't a big difference. No. You can read about it. There, yes. There, and where people say, well, you know, he's nice to me. I have a good relationship with him and stuff. And it's like, yes, because he gains something by being nice to you. They can choose to be nice to people. In fact, this whole people who say, oh, there was another side to him, or he's a Jekyll and Hyde. No, there's one side to him. He's being nice to you because that's his manipulation yeah. of you. And one thing they know is the more people on their side, yeah. the crazier or more unhinged or dramatic or whatever, the people who have a problem with the person are going to see. Yes. And it just shows, once again, like people want... And the more they can get away with with those other right. with the people. And that, the people that they can get away with getting away with shit they're able to right. mask it to everybody right. else. Right, and that's how they get away with stuff. And also, one one thing that has to happen is that people have to recognize what circumstantial is, and people also have to recognize how certain behavior is a red flag, and even if it's not actual evidence you can use at a trial, it's things that you need to look at. Like, for instance, people who strangle or try to strangle during a fight or even during sex and stuff 
That is a big sign of domestic violence and many people who end up killing their wives, whether they strangle them to death or not, there's strangulation in... Yeah, I know. Because it's a very controlling way to harm somebody, a very personal... And there are a lot of things like that. The whole love bombing, I hate it when people say, oh, they were so in love they got married so soon. No. Nobody is. Mm -hmm. Nobody is fucking... Maybe your relationship worked out, and maybe you're still together, you know, 60 years later or whatever, but you can't know somebody... In three weeks. No. You know, and when it's a guy like that, and it's funny because I heard a report, I heard somebody cite a report on some podcast, I can't remember which one now, that, uh, it may have been Dr. Phil, his initial one, but that a huge percentage of murderer, murders back like in the 60s and 70s and stuff were solved, and m- many fewer are now. And as you know, Statistics can mean a lot of different things. And my feeling is, how many people in the 60s and 70s were... Were guilty. Were guilty or innocent. Also, how many things were recognized as murder? Yeah. How many were investigated? How many people are... Whose bodies just decomposed out in a cornfield? People are, you know, more aware of a murder now. How many things were brushed off as not being murdered? People nowadays, you're on a grid all the time, most of the time. People know where you are, what you're doing all the time. You can't just take off. Someone can track you a lot of times. Yes. Back in the 60s, you could... Yeah, and someone say, "Gee, she, right. she moved fact, away." Right. In fact, there's a good again, there's a good book by Elizabeth Greenwood, and I didn't realize I was going to bring it up, so I can't exactly remember the title. But it's about faking your own death, and she decided yeah. to find out. And it's about different people who tried Which, to do that. Um, yes, yeah, so but I she to read that. It, well, I can lend it to you. But she decided to find out what goes into it, and it's actually a lot harder than you would think. And I always think of that when they, every single disappeared person, like Maura Murray. Oh, they just took off. They started a new life. In these days, and one of the things, and one of the things the guy, one of the guys who actually helped people do that, said is you have to start months in advance setting up like a fake existence for yourself. Like a fake online existence. Even if you're not going to be all out there and everything, you have to exist. The person you're going to be after you fake yeah, your death has you to, to exist. You so it's not this thing where people just casually say, oh, they ran off to start a new and life. And moved to, like, Mexico right. or something. Especially if they left their phone, their money, their purse, and their car all at home. You know what it reminds me of? That? Remember that show, The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perry? Oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that show. It was funny. But anyway, so that's my Well, thank topic. you. And I had seen that. On Dateline. I and, and do you, yeah, watch the Nancy Grace. It's Injustice with Nancy Grace. When, when, I, when you can. When, I know when your app gets fixed or whatever. No, but I'm, I'm not, also telling. Oxygen. Oh, it's not oxygen. Oxygen and NBC are the same thing. Uh, All the shows I watch on Oxygen, Oxygen, after I watch them, show up on my NBC app. They are on the NBC app, but they are locked And if you don't have Oxygen on your cable. Okay, if whatever. It's not I understand, cable. but I'm not only telling you, I'm telling our listeners yeah. who may have access to Injustice with Nancy Grace to watch it. Maybe someday you'll be able to watch it, too. There was something else I was going to say, but you just giving me the finger now. Um, disturbed me so much. <laughs> Red flag. No, that when I was looking for some stuff on this, if you Google bathtub and murder, it's absolutely mind-boggling how many women have died in a bathtub and their husbands tried to make it look, or somebody tried to make it look like an accident, or has looked at like an accident. And the, you can, either one of us can name ten. And women even take a bath. That's also, and even women who do, what I was wondering yesterday was, 
I would love to see how many people die in bathtubs where it's been proven that they accidentally died in the bathtub, that they slipped and fell or drowned after taking drugs or whatever. Not just that the cops assumed it was an accident. I would love to see the statistics on how many people, women almost exclusively, you never see this with a man. And if somebody does, let us know because that would be an interesting case to look at. Have, Have died in a bathtub by accident or of natural causes versus how many women were murdered and the husband thought that was the best way to that make it look like an accident. Whitney Houston and her daughter. Yeah, that's true. Because Bobby Christina died in a bathtub, and, too. Yes, I know. I was but thinking she that. wasn't alone, I don't no, think. No, she wasn't. No, so, she wasn't. But anyway, I, I think we have some recommendations. Yes. <laughs> So my recommendation this week is for a Netflix series called Unbelievable, which... Unbelievable! Thank you. I'm sure people wanted to hear that. They did. So I, um, like, it was one of those things where I opened up Netflix, and I was like, oh, that's right, I was going to check this out. So I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't even realize until after, like, the third episode, and I checked out the notes on the series, that it was actually based on a true story, which is a ProPublica article. And according to, I was just listening to Crime Writers On, who um, talked about this show today, and Rebecca Lavoie had read the article and said it tr- actually tracks very closely the the whole um, story arc and everything to the article. Which is good, because one issue I have with dramas that are made from real-life things is you never know what's fictionalized, what's fictionalized and what's real. And, and There are things in this that you can tell are not. Are right. Not. Real or not of the actual facts of the case, but just stupid conversations. There's a, right. there's only a couple, and I'll talk about that in my review. But the um, storyline is starts with a oh, a young woman. She, I think she's 18 or 19 who has been raped in her apartment. But she's a foster, a former foster child, and there's some kind of it's in Washington, D.C. State. Oh, state. Sorry, it's an apartment building, but it's also a program to help them transition into the into the regular world so she lives in an apartment but she also goes to these group therapy sessions and you find this out as it goes along but she's been raped and she goes and reports it to the police and as they're going along she has to keep recounting her story and the first episode i have to say is kind of graphic and it's depressing it's difficult to watch but i think it is a it's worth watching for the so you can see what she actually went through and this is an actual young woman that this happened to this horrible rape and she has to keep recounting it to different people everyone keeps asking her and she's she's you mean like police police people, yeah. people the first you know cop mm-hmm. at the scene and then the detectives and then they ask her to do it again and again yeah. and she has to go to the hospital and get you know um Break and they it. go through mm-hmm. what they have to go through which is also it's an invasive, invasive. procedure yeah. and it's not comfortable and yes there are nice women around there to help you you know but you still feel like shit and you've been brutalized so anyways she ends up recanting and you have to kind of right. watch it to see what happens. She recants, and then she says, "No, I didn't. I really was raped." And then she she ultimately ends up recanting because she's the. It, it really is a. It really does a good job showing how she was pressured to recant, and then how she was pressured again to to say to tell the truth. And then all this bad shit happened to her because of her recanting. She ended up losing her job. She lost her apartment. One of her foster mothers is one of the ones that was so doubt in the detective's minds mm-hmm. about it. That's all happened. 
and then it jumps to three years later in Colorado, which you kind of have to pay attention to, first of all, the jump in time and the jump in geography, which they do say they have, you know, the little letters on the screen. But if you're not paying attention, you can be like, wait, what's going on? In Colorado, similar rapes are happening, and it's three years later. The thing I liked about this, and it was a true story, the detectives in Washington State, it's two men, older men, Mm -hmm. that end up not believing her. Mm. And you can kind of see why they don't believe her on one hand, but on the other hand, you can kind of see that if they didn't have these preconceived notions, and if they didn't, it's just really well, I think it's really well developed. It's like, I'm glad it's a long series, because it really delves into why they did what they did, And she ends up, the thing that kills me is she ends up getting charged with filing a false report just to add insult to injury. Mm. The girl that plays her, I have to say, is so good. And I'll talk about that later. So I'm going to go through the negative Nellies and then I'll talk about it some more. So bad reenactments, that doesn't Apply. apply. Although it is based on a true story. I don't. So I would say they're good because the acting's good. Um, Narrative cliches, no, because it is, even though, even on true stories, there can be narrative cliches. Yes, they can. Um, well, things based on a true story because they can do whatever they want. They can throw narrative cliches true. in there and make characters trite. And and they really steered away from this a lot, except, and I don't know if I will do that in storytelling or... Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do it in this. Uh-huh. But let me just say, the only cliche is it later in the series when they focus on the two detectives in um, Colorado... Uh, two different areas of Colorado that are working in the golden, it's the golden Colorado area, two women detectives who are working on the other rapes, which it turns out to be, spoiler alert, same rapist, which you can kind of tell as the viewer, you know yeah. it's the same person, yeah. even though they don't show him ever. Right. But you can tell, obviously, right. they're talking about it because it's the same person. Some of their the, their storyline is very police procedural TV. There's a couple scenes that are extremely annoying to me where there's all this... Ex- someone explaining something to somebody. Are you taking away points for that? Oh, yeah. Yes, Except I Because we're doing the rating. <laughs> one point. I'm taking away one point. Okay. Just for that one, there's at least right. one scene, maybe another short scene, where someone's explained some stupid DNA genome oh, I hate that, to yeah. an intern who actually studied it genetics and said yeah I know I studied genetics which which is good that he told them yeah. that but at the same time the way they explained it is so unnatural yeah, you almost expect somebody to pop up and say yeah but the people watching didn't you know, know. Or something. like I hate that's why I don't like those police procedures because they're so artificial the conversation right. and everything that's else one reason I don't they're like very it. well the the writing in this is really really good and that was a scene that stuck out bad but I am okay, taking so a point away because okay. it was stupid yeah racial gender obtuseness no there were actually basically Based on real true detectives, and they were white women, and the other two in Washington were white men. There's an FBI guy who's a black guy, and I don't know if that person is a real person or a, or a conglomeration when of people. Based on a true story, they can make people any color they want. I know they can, but I'm saying I think the lead people that are based right. on actual people with actual names, right. they made them the racial, up, and I'm saying that the. Peripheral people, I don't know. One of the victims is a black woman. I know I read a thing about it that said some of the characters are composites. Yeah, I'm sure they are. But I didn't see any obtuseness. I was happy to see the characters were were very good. They had, you know, 
pluses and minuses, and I'll talk about that in storytelling. But I really didn't, I'm not going to take any points away for obtuseness. Lack of good visuals, no. Um, there are some very graphic scenes, but I think it's done well where um, they're just kind of short flashes to, to the attacks. So ye, the visuals are fine, so no points taken away. Missing pieces, no. I thought it was really good because... It wrapped it up at the end, too, so you know how it, how everything kind of ended. So I'm going to not take away for that. Inaccuracies, anachronisms, not that I could tell. And I thought it was interesting. Marie is the name of the character, but her the real woman has a different name that was charged with filing a false report. She works in, like, some kind of a... I don't know if it's a real superstore out there, <laughs> but it's kind of like a Walmart-type place. Mm -hmm. And her <laughs> work scenes are pretty realistic. <laughs> her boss is n isn't mean, but she's also not... She doesn't put up with any shit. And mm. Storytelling, I give it good grades. I'm not taking anything off of that. Because the way the storyline was done, it wasn't really chronological. It switched back and forth. So you didn't really know what was going to happen with Marie, his case... You didn't. You knew probably at the end that they would figure out. You have to watch it to find right. out. But it's done. It's so good. It's really well done. Freshness. I'm not going to take anything off of freshness. I already took a point off for the uh, cliches. It's a fresh way to look at th this false reporting thing. It kind of, it just the way it explains how she ended up recanting her story. Right. It's not a simple, and she... It, well, I think that's good because you don't get that very often. No. I mean, a lot of women recant, and people are like, well, she recanted, yes. so that means it must not have happened. So I think it's good. I mean, it sounds fresh And the fresh only thing me. I question, and maybe I should have had this in Missing Pieces, is I should read the article i might read it to just to in the show when she recants her story her picture is released online and her or her name people know who she is mm. and i thought that was very unfair yeah and right. she ends up getting and i'm sure the rationale was she wasn't sexually assaulted yes, and she and, is and now she committed caused, a crime and she caused right. a right a, you know fear and right. repetition no they did repeat, um, obviously, when someone's having a flashback, stuff like that. But it wasn't, you know, since it wasn't true right. crime. They were more concerned with the storytelling, I think, than, than a, like a true crime where they show the same photograph every mm -hmm. commercial. Yeah. Beating the drum, no. And they could have easily beat mm. the drum. There was one scene that was slightly drum beating, and I don't know if it's true or not, where the original detective apologizes to her and says, made him stay, I, right. you know, I was, I'm, maybe I should resign because I, I obviously suck at my job. There's, yeah. two, there's two detectives, the other one didn't give a shit. It was actually an interesting scene because when the and I and I doubt that this really happened in true life, but it still was a good scene. When the guy is apologizing to her, the other guy kind of comes down the stairs and overhears it and just like stands there and doesn't say anything. And That's, then he just that leaves. seems made up. But you have to see it. Right. He but he doesn't look contrite or anything right. too. He's just right. kind of like, uh, what the fuck is right. going on? Because he's a freaking sixty-year-old right. man. He yeah. doesn't give a yeah. shit about this, you know, twenty-year-old right. girl. Overall, I gave it a nine. I highly recommend it. And I want to say that the the big name in it is Tony Collette, and that this is going to be part of the narrative cliche issue. There are two women. She plays Grace Rasmus and Tony Collette. Merritt Weaver plays Karen Duval who is the uh, is another detective. Karen is a very... She's the first woman detective you see in the Colorado storyline, and she's very kind of low-key. She's great. Her acting is great. She is so real. And the Tony Collette is, but she's also kind of that... 
type we've seen yes. where she's more hard-edged and yeah. blah blah and I don't yeah. need no partner type of thing right. and hmm. I know that the weird woman maybe that like that no I think the thing I read said they they kind of fictionalized yeah. the characters so but the person that I thought did the best acting was Caitlin Deaver who played Marie because she she looks very young there's one scene where it made me almost start to cry. She was making me cry. Where she's at work. She's going through whatever. I don't even know what she's going through. But her boss is like, you're late. Blah, blah, mm. blah. You know, get out and do your job. And she's she's at work and she's having to hand out samples to people or something. And she's she's trying not to cry. You know, she has to put like these hot dogs in the, these mm. things. And the customers are idiots. They're not really trying to be mean. They're just, But she's trying not to cry and she's trying to do her job. And she's su it's such a good... It's very subtle. And everything she does in it... And all the acting is excellent, mm -hmm. actually. I don't think anyone was bad in the whole show. But just the way her... her her subtlety was just, I thought she was great. So I am saying everybody should watch it if you have Netflix. Okay. The first episode, though, um, is hard. It's well, good. it should be hard. You know, it's about right. Well, thanks. I will watch that soon. Yes, yeah, so have we time can to, discuss it. When I have time to watch stuff. Usually when I'm watching stuff, it's, I just want to watch something quick. You know, I don't want to get too involved yes. in something because I don't have a lot of time. But my review is going to be Dirty John, The Dirty Truth, Ooh. which is the documentary that was on Oxygen. I saw that. You saw it? No, I saw no, it I didn't think so. Oh, well, good. But I wasn't sure if I wanted to watch Well, it. I wasn't either, but then I decided to. This is the documentary. Mm -hmm. It isn't the fictionalized account. I'm, With Connie Britton. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't like watching fictionalized accounts mm -hmm. of things because they might as well just be fiction. Yes. And it's, you I know, agree. I have issues that I people don't need to understand or... And if you don't, I won't go into a big long thing about the Dirty John story. If you don't know who he was or what the story is, I would listen to the podcast yes. or I would watch this. Um, I'm going to assume that most people know what we're talking yes. about, so I don't have to recap all that. I'm just going to talk for a second about the documentary versus the podcast. I really like the podcast. What I liked about the documentary is, first of all, you can see what the people yes. look like. And the reporter, he, Chris Gosford, looked just like I thought he did. The women didn't really look like him. Well, I had thought, who did it? Dateline? Somebody no, did it was an oxygen. No. Oh, oh, on, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. Or, so you saw them. Us, yes. Okay. But, well, anyway, if you haven't, you see them. Except on, I didn't see the other daughter. Well, what, and also what I liked about this is it wasn't just Deborah Newell's story, who was his last victim, but it went through many of ah, his people who his weren't, yeah, people who weren't mentioned in the podcast. So it was, ah. it was good. In fact, I would say if I had to choose one or the other, I would probably choose the documentary. If you want just one or the other to know what the story is, the podcast is good, but the documentary um, is about two hours long, and it actually has more depth to it in a lot of ways. So bad reenactments, sadly, there, were, there weren't a lot of reenactments, but I'm taking away half a point. In fact, I was watching it the second time. I've watched this twice. Liz, our sister, was visiting, and the second time I watched it, and I was kind of bitching about this, and she, she's like, why? It doesn't matter, but it bother, bothered me. The climatic thing where he attacks the daughter, Tara, I remember from the podcast, and I'm going to have to go back and listen to it, there was some significant, she was still wearing her Wellington's boots from work. She worked at an animal um, kennel or something, and she was wearing, you know, rain boots. And when the attack happened, there was some reason they were significant. I can't remember what. And the little reenactment of the attack showed her, she was wearing, like, hiking boots. And then they also had photos, and it's like, 
Why even have the reenactment if you have so many photos, for one thing? I know. And also, then, why have... So you know what she looked like. You know what she was wearing. Why have the person in the reenactment have totally different things on? I'm only taking away half a point because they weren't overt. They weren't really bad, like you see on some things. And also... Yeah, you know, it was a good show, but one reason I'm also taking away half a point is aside from the, like, the boots thing, which I think is a legitimate complaint, even though Liz didn't, why have these reenactments at all? I know. You know, they were the typical showing somebody on the phone, showing somebody doing this, but they have photos, and they had the people talking, which to me is compelling, and maybe people who make documentaries feel like readers don't want to sit there and watch someone talk, but I'll get in when I... Well, much, as much as I complain about Dateline and 48 Hours, they don't have reenactments. Right. And so I'm taking away half a point for bad reenactments. Okay. Narrative cliches. There's no narration. There were info cards. Mm. There, You know, it's the story is the story. There could have been cliches, like... It, it, but as usual with these, most of the cliches are spoken by people like, I don't know why somebody would do something. How can somebody act like that kind of thing, which bugs me. There wasn't a lot. I'm not taking away any points. Racial and gender obtuseness? No. Um, there were some people. There was one w- woman he almost ripped off for $37 million. Oh, my God. Who was Argentinian and had a very heavy accent, and they had subtitles. But I don't really think of that as being obtuse. I just think of it as helping people... Understand lack of good visuals. I would say no. There were good visuals. They had lots and lots of photos. I feel like the reenactments weren't necessary. Yes. And also the way the interviews were filmed, they were in different places. But everybody they interviewed, they had Deborah. They had his first wife. Um, they had this cop from Ohio who was great. And they had other people. No matter where they the setting, they had them sitting on a couch or a love seat with. Some It was very symmetrical with either a window, with the ocean or something behind them. They were all different settings, but it was kind of neat the way there was like a framework for each person. And frankly, I think watching people talk when they're talking about stuff like that is interesting yes. enough. And what they're saying is interesting enough. You don't need to add a reenactment. So yeah, the visuals were very good. You know, it's the same pictures of John that you see, that yeah. shirtless one of him and... But they also used, there are a lot of different, he was kind of a chameleon, and they had a lot of different pictures of him and kind of used whatever picture fit what they were talking about. They also had video from the wedding to his first wife, Tanya, and where the name Dirty John, they talk about a lot in the podcast, Mm -hmm. too, came up. Actually, it was Filthy John, I think, of that. So the visuals were all very good. It was nicely filmed. They used the pictures well. They did repeat pictures, but it wasn't this annoying, oh, there's that picture again. Don't they have another picture of that person? Her daughter, Deborah's daughter, Jackie, who's a very private person, as they mentioned, yes. was on, but didn't want to be shown, so they had her oh, in yeah. silhouette. But So that was fine. And they, like, fuzzed out her in some of the photos they showed, but I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, missing pieces. There were some minor ones. I'm taking away half a point. Because, for instance, if you listen to the podcast, you know that her little dog in the final attack played a part. Tara's Tara's dog. It was a miniature Australian shepherd. And And again, in the the pictures, they show her in the hospital with the dog. They didn't mention the dog in the narrative. They didn't have the dog, which I know would have been hard to do, in the reenactment. But the dog did play a part in her um, being able to get him, you know, win that battle. And they should have said something about the dog. There are a couple other little things. I mean, there are a lot of things that weren't in it that I can understand because there's a time constraint. Like, for instance, what happened with Deborah's sister being shot yes. and how that kind of informed Deborah's 
attitude, like her upbringing informed her attitude about men and stuff. But I don't think the missing pieces were so bad that I would take away one point, but I am taking away half a point. Inaccuracies or anachronisms, not really. I think that um, the missing pieces kind of takes care of that. Storytelling was very good. It was not linear. In fact, very early on they had his ex-wife. They had Deborah. They alternated between years. You have to be paying attention because they'll say what year it is. But they do jump back and forth between years, and then they intersperse these other women in there. The thread with his ex-wife goes through the whole thing. They also have his daughters, who are beautiful young women. Mm -hmm. I mean, the storytelling is not linear, but it's good. It builds up. If you know what happened from watching the podcast, it's just as good as if you don't know what happened. If you don't know what happened, you might be a little confused because they kind of show a little of the attack, his final attack mm-hmm. at first. But um, it, the storytelling is, is really good. They let people tell the story. They use interviews to really good effect. Um, they bring in the right people at the right time. That woman he almost stole $37 million from, and um, it was interesting. Freshness, it is fresh. Even though um, there's been a dateline, there's been the podcast, there's been all sorts of things, there's been other podcasts, there's been podcasts, there's been the fictionalized thing. It was fresh to me. Some of those things I haven't watched because I'm like, "Eh, I already know the story. This was fresh because it brought in a lot of things that the podcast... Did it make Deborah look less dumb? Yeah, she didn't... You know, she She was really dumb in the podcast. It was explained better. See, I think the podcast... The way it told the story, and I don't have a problem with it, didn't do her any favors. Yeah. And also, she's had a lot of hindsight to understand. Yeah. And also, the reporter's a little smarter. In the podcast, he had no idea about course of control know, and shit yeah. like that. Oh, and one thing I like about this, too, is Laura Richards is in it. Ooh, yeah, and I'm a big fan. I would I would like to be her friend. I want to yeah, I'm sure be she, her friend. She, um, a badass 14-year-old girl from the attack. She yeah. is. Yeah. She is. And that's another thing in The Missing Pieces is... They don't go into the detail about the role of how this girl... They don't say she was 14, which I think they should have. Yes. And so that's part of the half point I'm taking away from Missing Pieces. They don't tell that this 14-year-old girl, where other people were around and not doing anything, a 14-year-old girl ran towards a woman who was being stabbed by a much bigger guy. So that was good. Repetition... They have the kind of repetition you need when a story like this is being told. Photos are repeated. Some... Facts are repeated, but it's to help you understand things or have things in context, so they do a good job with that. Beating the drum, there's no drum beating. I would say sometimes it borders on how could another human being do this? He's evil, just evil. But they don't overdo that, you know, that stuff I like, I dislike. So I am taking away one point. Okay. For the half for the bad remarkers, the half. But I highly recommend it. I think Ooh. it's really good. I think it tells you more, and it delves more into the psychological why, what type of person he is, and why he is. And that's one of the roles Laura Richards plays. One of the issues I had with the podcast is the reporter was clueless about that kind of behavior. So everybody's just kind of left shrugging and saying, Oh, I would say act like that. And so you miss that whole context. Well, you need someone to tell you. Yeah, right. With and Laura. Right. And, um, and, you know, with the reenactments, it was like a thing like when Tara's telling how she found his certificate that showed he was a nurse, not a doctor, like he had said. And she kind of confronts her mother about it. And as she's telling the story, the reenactment is showing 
it done in a different way than what she's telling and it's like you don't need i know i know you, do, like, you have so you, much stuff you don't you? need i, I know, just say I get rid of the that. reenactments but it's on oxygen maybe it will be other places someday soon i'm well, i'm getting like a lot the of R. kelly thing yeah i'm getting a lot of love out of oxygen and if you don't know who dirty john is that's the thing to watch yeah. i would say before listening to the podcast i wouldn't recommend the fictional lies thing i haven't seen it because i don't like those the Dateline thing Dateline probably left really cover shit anything, out. Yeah. Like, so I anyway. didn't really have anything. I just wanted, before we leave, my peeve about not just Oxygen, but like HGTV as well, or anything like that, is like I got HBO to go app so I can watch, or HBO go over, so I could watch HBO stuff. And I don't mind paying the, whatever, 12 bucks a month or whatever. But why can't other channels just, like, why do you have to be able to link to it from your stupid, fi- it's the cable companies, I'm right. sure. But Oxygen's supposed to be on my cable, but that's a whole other story. So I haven't been, but yeah, I'm so just saying sabotage. that if you want to watch just a certain, right. thing, why don't they all have that? Like It's HBO a la carte, yeah. yeah. Because the cable companies are trying to hang on with all their might. But these you know, networks don't need them to. I know they don't, but they're... And then, like, I could watch I HGTV on Hulu. I guess I could get well, what the, Hulu, used to bug the me? big Hulu Plus that's 45 right. bucks a month. Right, but, uh, but that's a lot of money. And the thing is, what bugged me before I got cable back, which I've had back for a few months now, is why do you have to link your cable provider to be able to watch stuff at all you should be able to there should be options for you and there are some very limited options that's why it was with me it was netflix and hulu and hbo now and amazon prime and i kind of go between i always keep netflix yes but the other but hulu um amazon prime video and hbo go i kind of go back and forth about well, how much am I watching Amazon this? Prime how much do I want to use it for yeah. other things? Yeah, too, me too. So. That is our show for today. Hopefully, the background noise isn't too bad. Yeah, and we'll. But it's a nice day out. It's, it's a nice, a beautiful it's a beautiful fall, fall, day. fall day, and we're meeting. It's kind of halfway in between where we live, so it's easier than one of us going to the other's yes. place. And you can find us online at Crime and Stuff Online. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. And supposedly Instagram. Yeah, I'll start doing more. I, there's just so much. And we can say our. Those who have donated on Patreon, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but I can't think of... It's a Patreon. I know, whatever. Patreon, Patreon. Whatever. Anyway. Who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? You know what it is. Are are getting our newsletter. Some of the... And people have more time than us, but some people are so good at... Like, there's a couple I know that fellow podcasters who keep up with the social media and they're on top of everything, and I'm so envious of that, and I realize they have different schedules than us and different lives and i wish i really do i i'm so grateful to everyone to listen i'm hoping someday we'll get our shit together or like we'll have we'll be in a situation where we can give back a little more because yeah i really am like grateful to, for everyone who listens we'd like to um but we both have jobs that we have to do to keep roofs over our heads <laughs> and other stuff going on and it's very hard it's time consuming and, and it's hard and you don't realize how much time consuming just social media stuff is yes and i and i am also like supposed to be doing that for my job and stuff and there you get to a point during the day at least i do because i'm looking at a screen all day that you can't look at a screen for another yeah, friggin second and i look at a screen most of the day you too. know so it, it is what it is i mean ideally i'd also be able to get my book written yeah i know you know i mean there's a lot of things. I'm not so much envious of the people who have time to devote. Is I'm just 
um, I would just like more time well, myself not, to do I'm the things I want to do yes, instead of the things I have I'm, to do. I'm not saying, I guess I shouldn't say envious in that way. What well, I'm, I'm not saying is I'm, you. I'm, I'm, um, yeah, but I don't think envious is the right word. I am, You're frustrated that we can't do that. I wish that I could be yes. like Because we could. Because yeah. we, I mean, we want to. It's not that we're being, I think yes. the point is it's not that we're being lazy and saying, we're not doing all the stuff. Or, or that else. we're not grateful and we don't want to give people right. the stuff that we, we right. would like to. Yes, we would. We give you guys everything. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of which, um, I got to head north and you got to yes. head south. Yeah. So, well, thanks for listening. Rush hour, yay. Oh, yeah. So much is rush well, hour. Yeah, that's, I'm going north. So, so. Yeah. I mean, we're right at the point where, like, if I'm in Portland... This is it where clears it clears yeah, up, right after and it's not that bad. And right. there's two giant cruise ships in Portland Harbor uh, right now. Uh, well, at least they have nice weather. They were all walking around with their yeah. little tags with, on their Oh, uh, isn't that sweet? It's, like, it's like a cult. Wandering around. But anyway, um, oh, and just a quickie recommendation. I want to do one of those. Okay. Um, I've had, over the many, many years, a, a love-hate relationship with Dr. Phil. Yes. But I was looking for something to listen to, and he has a podcast. I think it's very hard to read the logo, but I think it's called Mind and Murder. Or my, he has a couple podcasts, but this one is called Mind and Murder, Mind of a Murderer. He each season he does a different case. Like this third season, he's doing Kyron Horman, um, which we did with our sister Liz. His second season, he did Rebecca's a Cow. The first season, he did Gypsy Rose. Um, you know, the girl who killed her mother with Munchausen. You know, mm-hmm. I can't remember her last name. It's very good. It's actually very good. And one thing I like about him is that he understands the psychology of things. So he's not like, I don't know why anyone would act like that. And it, more than anyone else on any podcast I've ever listened to, um, when somebody gets a lawyer, he doesn't say, and then they lawyered up or whatever. He explains over and over again why it's important, even if you're innocent, to get a lawyer when the police want to talk to you if you're a suspect in a murder. So I highly recommend that for people, unless you really hate Dr. Phil, it makes me like him more because he's very... I always, I, I started out really liking him. Me too. Well, I had an and issue... And show got, that Dr. Phil family got it too got, The Dr. Phil family bothered me because I felt it was exploiting the family. And we can go into a whole thing about that, but um, it's getting late. And so good. is that it? Yes. Okay. Until next time. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Plus, wait. Wait, let's wait till Mr. Macho and his Silverado smoking cigarette cigarette gets out of there. Fuck you, buddy. I don't know what you were doing. No. That was mine. Of course it was. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Because you don't have any friends who text you? That's my bank telling me my balance is low. (laughs)